Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. This summer, we're walking through the book of Romans, taking a master class from the rich and powerful book of the New Testament. Romans is one of the greatest books of the Bible. It is the essence of the gospel and provides the rich doctrine of our faith. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and God has used it to change the hearts of men and ultimately the world. In Romans, we see the impact of our sin, which reveals our deep need for God, and then the importance of living out our faith in Jesus today. Whether a lifelong student of the Bible to a first-time believer, this is a masterclass for everyone. Let's listen in. church. If you're excited as I am to be diving in Romans 2, you go ahead and get your copy of God's Word out or the device you use for that. We're going to be walking line by line for that in just a second, but I wanted to start. I figured, wait, what's the best way to start a sermon with a really strong start that you can't go downhill from? And I figured it was this. I was going to show you a picture of a wolf uh, to start out with. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I wanted you to have a wolf in your mind for a reason. I wanted you to remember what a wolf looks like. This is a real wolf. These are real in existence. They're roaming in the wild in certain places. This is what a wolf looks like. I wanted this at the forefront of your mind as I tell you um, a story. And as I tell you this story, I want to preface with this. I've learned that people have um, opinions, strong opinions about everything, um, so I want to say this, you know, when I tell this story, it's going to elicit certain opinions, certain feelings inside of you. It may elicit some, some emails from you. So I just want to go ahead and put it out there. You can send all your emails of criticism of this story to my email address. That's jeffsimmons at suggestionbox.com. I'll read all of those, go walk through each one of those. So, um, so recently, I have four kids Two of them are in elementary school and two of them are in preschool, uh, which means, so as a pastor, I, I, I have Fridays off and usually I try to do something with my five-year-old because it's the last year before he goes to kindergarten and we like to do something outside most of the time. And recently we have these trails in our neighborhood and uh, we were going to go for a walk on the trail. There's a creek in there. We jump in the creek. We were, we were out there. We were playing in the water. Then we were catching crawfish. It was awesome. And um, we come out of the creek and we start going. We're about halfway down the trail at this point. We go around the next trail and we get to this point and there's a bend in the trail. And as we're walking, we're walking. And then all of a sudden we turn the bend and they're standing in the trail it's one of the largest dogs I've ever seen in my entire life. And it's standing there just strong, just staring straight at us like this, like, what are you going to do? And my son asked me, is that a nice dog? I said, I'm not quite sure. And so I say, you know what, Zeke, let's go the other way. So I kind of grab him and kind of pick him up and start walking the other way. I was like, I'm going to see what this dog's going to do. So as we turn and start walking the other way, the dog starts following us very slowly down the path. And I'm like, this is concerning. So I started thinking to myself, I was like, okay, we were just across the creek. There's a rock uh, kind of bridge we can get across. And I'll just, let's get over there and then see what happens. So we get back to the creek. I get across and I don't see the dog. I was like, 
Okay, we're in the clear here. And then all of a sudden I see a bicyclist come by, a dog full speed chasing bicyclists down the trail. And I'm like, oh my goodness, Zeke, get down. He can't see us. And then he, and then he stops. The dog stops and then turns and goes back the other way. And I was like, okay, I see what's going on here. That's his side of the woods. He owns that now. That's his domain. I'm just going to give it to him. I was like, well, we don't see him. Let's just wait here for a second. So we wait there for a second and we don't see the dog. And I was like, all right, Zeke, we're going to go back across and we're going to go back the other way. So I pick him up. We go back across, I don't see him, and then all of a sudden I hear, full speed dog running full speed towards us. Let me show you a picture of this dog. This is the dog that was chasing. Now, don't get confused. This is not how he was looking when I saw him. This is later when it was, he was tired of terrorizing people that this is the dog I saw. And look, I'm going to be very clear with you. I know this is not a wolf, but he's definitely related to one. He's got the DNA. That's where it comes from. And this thing was standing, he wasn't laying like this. He was standing strong on the trail. So he's, he's chasing my son and I. My son, he's five, but he's not the lightest cat in the world. He's like a sack of potatoes. So I, I scoop him up and we're running full speed at this point now. And I got two decisions to make. I'm like, I cannot make it to the end of this trail. I'm going to have to make a different decision. I know the creek's on this side and the neighborhood is on this side. There's about 15 feet between me and the neighborhood of woods. So I pick him up and I run full speed through the woods. There's thorns. I'm getting cut. I'm exaggerating, but it sounds cooler. But I'm, I'm busting through the woods. And as I bust through the woods, there's these two little sweet little girls on a swing set in their backyard swinging. And here comes this large man busting, carrying a child. They start screaming at the top of their lungs. Oh my God. They're scared to death at this point. They're running. Mother comes out. Who are you? What are you doing in their backyard? I can't believe, you know, like a mother would. And I'm like, there's a dog chasing us. And I keep running. I was like, protect your children. And she sees. She's like, I see you right now. Girls, get inside. And we, we get into the sidewalk. And we turn around and the dog's not there. So we start walking back to the house. It was just like our face. I was like, keep your eyes open, Zeke. So we start walking like backwards all the way to the house. Later on, that dog supposedly through Facebook uh, gossip uh, went into someone's house in the neighborhood, walked into their living room and like growled at the lady. So I wasn't crazy. Now, I've told this story a couple times, and some people are like, hey, why don't you walk up to the dog and pet it and see if it's okay? I was like, hey, I ain't from there, bro. Where I'm from, South Jackson, Mississippi, you see a stray dog, you either run or climb a tree, one of the two. You don't stick around to see if, because most of the time they are not nice, and they've been living on the streets for a minute. So we were, we were going to get out of there. We, we just had to get out of there. But see, what I wanna, the reason I tell you this story is this. My job as a father, whether you, who knows if the dog was dangerous or not, I believe my son to be in danger. And my job as his shepherd, as his father, is to, when I see danger, do everything in the best of my ability to move him in the other way. Move him to a safer path. Move him to a safe path, passage away from danger. And I tell you that story because that is true of God. If that's true of a, a human with faulty uh, faulty thoughts, faulty abilities, who's frail, who's weak, who loves his son so much that would redirect him. How much more does a perfect and holy God love us? And when there's danger in front of us, will provide a different way for us. In the same way that I protected my son from somebody's family pet, it's probably the nicest dog in the world. God wants to protect us from any danger that's in front of us. And hopefully as we read Romans 2, you'll see the heart of God here in Romans 2 providing a way for us away from 
danger. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read through 11, then we're going to stop there. This is what the Word of God says. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do these things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who persist in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking, who reject truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. What I want you to do is just think for with me for a second. Like when you're studying a passage like this, you want to make sure you know the context. You want to know what's going on around it so you can understand to the fullest of what it's trying to tell us. So I want us to go back to chapter one for a second because it has this word at the beginning is therefore that always tells you to put on the brakes. Hey, what is the therefore talking about? And what he's talking about is everything that Pastor Jeff talked about last week in chapter one. Paul was revealing to us, he was writing to the Gentiles and he's pointing out to the Gentiles here are the sins that you're prone to. Here are the sins that, here's a list of things that you guys are running towards. And a lot of it, God has given you over to these things. And he, he gives a pretty extensive list here. So he's given it to the Gentiles. And what we should see from chapter 1 is, yes, those were things that Gentiles ran after. But every one of us is found in Romans chapter 1. We can find ourselves, every one of us, in Romans chapter 1. So we turn to chapter 2, and you have this part where Paul is changing his audience. He was talking to the Gentiles. Now he's talking to the Jews. And the first thing he does to address them is their sins. And the first thing he says is, how dare you be judgmental? And the thing I want you to point out to you is, this is why they're being judgmental. They think, okay, so the Gentiles, it says in Romans chapter 1, that God has revealed himself to him through creation. Like, it's called general revelation. God has generally revealed himself to all of humanity through general revelation, through sunsets, through creation itself, through the human body, through things we see. It's like this must be from something bigger, that thing inside of us that says there must be something bigger than this. This is general revelation. But then you move to the Jews and they have what's called special revelation. God has specifically revealed himself and what he's like through his law to the Jews. So they have this. And because they have this, they automatically think, hey, we're better than them. We have religion. They don't. We, we're so glad we're not like those other people. But what they don't understand, what they're doing here is because they have the law, they're held to a higher standard than even the Gentiles because God has specifically told them, do not do these things, and they are doing those things. This is where the heart of Paul is. What he's saying is, how dare you judge? God has told you specifically what not to do, and you are doing it. But what Paul wants them to see from this is that Gentiles and Jews, God shows no partiality. He's going to judge them all the same. 
But he has to get the Jews to the place of understanding this. And everything we study in Romans 2, what I'm going to try to do is pull us back to something Jesus taught. This is where Paul is pulling this from. And the first one I want to show you is this, is Luke. It says, this is Jesus talking. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. This is exactly what's happening here in Romans 2. They're being judgmental. They think that their righteousness is higher than them. And they're looking down on the Gentiles. It says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to pray, and one Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this. God, I thank you like I'm not those other people. So he's like, Lord, I am so glad I'm not like those guys. And then he says, they're robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this one tax collector. Calls out this one tax collector. He's like, because I fast twice a week and I give all the things, give a tenth of all that I get. So he's like, hey, I'm not like those guys. That guy's a Gentile. I know that he's a sinner. This is what I do. Starts listing the things that he does. His religion, the things that makes him stand apart from the other. But look what happens. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this is Jesus saying, I tell you that, the, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exhausted. Jesus saying this is really turning people upside down. They can't even understand this. We are God's chosen people. How is it possible that a tax collector could be exalted Higher, Because Jesus, what he's trying to tell them, what Paul's trying to tell them here, is that God does not care about the outward workings first. He cares about the heart first. He cares about the motives of our heart. He cares about the state of our heart. And the outworking comes next. What he's saying is, you judge and you have no right to judge. In fact, judgment is never ours to levy. Humans, us as humans, judgment is never ours to levy. And when I say never, I literally mean never. And what we'll talk about in just a second is what, aren't there times where we should make decisions in our life? But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Let me show you this. This is Luke talk. I mean, this is Matthew uh, 7. And this is Jesus talking about the same thing Paul's talking about. He says, do not judge. Pretty clear there. Thanks, Jesus. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure, you'll be measured as well. So basically, the same thing Paul's saying here. When you judge, you're going to be held to the same standard that you're holding to others. In the same level of severity that you're judging outsiders, you're going to be held to that same standard. Jesus, in a different part of the Gospels, is teaching us to pray. And he says, pray like this. He says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, or forgive us our trespassers as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or to say it another way, forgive us our sins in the same way we forgive those who sin against us. So this is two different places in judgment and in forgiveness where Jesus is saying, we are setting the scales for what judgment will look like. Because honestly, guys, if I ask God to only forgive me in the way that, he for, that I forgive others, I am in trouble. And in the same way, when we levy judgment on each other, we're setting a standard that we cannot live up to. We're setting a standard that we cannot even make because we cannot be held to the same standard. So the question is, should we, how do we judge then? The first thing I want you to see is when we talk about judgment, when we use the English word judgment, we're not meaning the same thing that Paul and Jesus are meaning here. Let me show you what I mean. Judgment and discernment are not the same here. Discernment and judging are not the same here. 
We as humans that are seeking human flourishing as, as followers of Christ, we have to make decisions about the world. We have to make decisions about right and wrong. We have to make decisions. The difference is judgment is final, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Discernment is, as I look at the world in this certain situation, how do I make the decisions that are best for my family and for myself based on the information I've had? We'll say, hey, I'm making a judgment call. That's not what they're talking about here. What we're really doing is making the decision, best decision based on the information we have. That's not a judgment call. Judgment is very different than what he's talking about here. We're talking about discernment. And God has given us the ability. He's given us his truth. He's given us a way to discern right from wrong. The people of God are called to discern right from wrong. But that is different than judgment. We'll talk about that in a second. But I want to show you this. God has given us tools of discernment, ways for us to make these decisions, ways for us to decipher the world, decipher right from wrong, and make decisions for ourselves and our family. The first one is this. He's given us his word. He's given us his holy and perfect word. He's revealed himself to us that when we look at the world, we can look at it through the window of Scripture and say, based on what Scripture sees, this is what I see in the world. We can speak truth through what we see in Scripture. But many times we're like, I'm looking at this. I'm looking at the world. I don't truly understand where this is. That's why he gives us the second tool, which is the Holy Spirit, to guide us as we read the word and say, I see what this says, but I don't know how it relates to my life or the world. The Spirit is there to help be our guide, to be our counselor, to counsel us forward into our life to forward into Christ's likeness so we're making these decisions around discernment based on scripture and the Holy Spirit the other one's this community so that we are when we're studying the word and we're letting the Holy Spirit guide us we do that in community to say hey you know what I'm seeing this in Scripture. Holy Spirit has revealed this to me. Has, has he revealed that to you as well? Let's talk about it in community because God will always confirm in community what he's given us to us in isolation, that we have these tools of discernment, that we have to be able to discern right from wrong, from good, from evil, and we do that through God's word, through his Holy Spirit, and in community. But then what about judgment? What I want you to see here is that judgment is final. And that's why we do not have the authority, we do not have the place to give judgment to anyone because judgment, as it talks about in Romans 2 and in Matthew 7, is final. When the book is closed, the judgment is final. And we cannot judge what is not complete. We cannot judge what is not complete. So like I'm a baseball coach, I, I was there at the baseball fields for like 13 hours yesterday and I coach a five and six-year-old team and a seven, eight-year-old team. When I, it, what I cannot do, first day of practice, look at these players and say, you're a bad baseball player. You'll never be a baseball player. You're a great baseball player. You're going to make it to the major leagues. I can't do that because you know why? I only know a fraction of their story of playing baseball. If I were to say that, that would be finality. I would be judging them based on what I see in this short period of time. I can't do that. But what I can do is discern where they are and say, this person is farther along than this person. And where they are, my job as a coach is to meet them there and help them take their next step in their story and their journey of playing baseball. Because there could be a five-star college recruit in that group. I don't know, probably not. But those are very rare in the world if you didn't know. But here's, that's what we're called to do as a church. We're not called to judge because when we see someone and we levy judgment on them, we are only seeing a partial port of their story. We're only seeing a small section of their story and we cannot judge based on that small section. It's like going to a movie and watching five minutes in the middle and saying, this is a bad movie. The part you saw might have been bad. 
But you can't make a final judgment based on things you can never see. And picture in that same movie, you're not allowed to see anything but that five minutes. You never see the end or the beginning. Can you make a judgment on it? Absolutely not. And that is true of us in human, in human form, that we can only see partial story. We cannot see the heart. We can only see outward workings of the heart. We cannot see anyone's heart. This is why God says, do not judge. He said, that is for me. You cannot see the heart. You cannot see their whole story. You cannot see the completion of it. That judgment is not for us. And another reason judgment is not for us is this. You cannot judge in a case that has your name on it. So if I was a judge and I was ruling over a case and as the legal documents come out, I read through and I see my name listed in the files, I have to recuse myself from that case because I am now impartial. I am biased now because my name is written in the case. And you say, you've heard that before, like this judge has to recuse himself because it's connected to a company he's invested in or something like that. So he has to recuse himself. Well, here's the, here's the truth of it. We cannot judge because the case we're trying to judge, we have been listed as a defendant in it. Because we were already found ourselves in Romans 1. When he goes through the list of sins, he speaks of things like faithless. I call that Wednesday for me. He said they were heartless. There's so many ways we find ourselves. We cannot judge anyone because we are found in that same case. We have no authority. We have no right to judge. But this is the gospel truth. There is a judgment coming, but it will be leveled by a holy and perfect God. One who can see the heart. One who can see the whole story. One who is not mentioned in the book and can be a righteous judge over and this is the truth that you and me and everyone watching online, and everybody else in this room, and in fact, everyone outside of this room will have to stand before this judgment. That we will all have to stand before a holy God. And Romans 2 says we will have to give account for every action that we did, the ones hidden and the ones seen. That we will have to stand, and that is what is called God's wrath, that it is coming and there are two ways. And we'll have to stand at the end of all things of how we were in the world. Which way do we stand for? But just like I was telling the story of on the trail that I provided a way away from danger and to safety. God has provided a way for us away from the coming wrath. Away from the judgment and into safety in his arms. But let me show you this first. When we level judgment, we are misplacing fire. When we level judgment on other people, we're misplacing fire. And what I mean by that is I got a fire pit in my backyard. If I put a fire in there and it's contained, it's nice, it's great. But last week before the rains came, there was a fire ban. There was a fire ban because if any of that fire got out of that fire pit and hit pine straw, we know what would happen. All kinds of peril would happen. Every forest fire ever in history was started by misplaced fire. Fire going where it didn't belong. But if it stays in the place it belongs, the place it was meant to go, that fire becomes something to warm us. It becomes something we can cook with. It even becomes something we can melt down certain substances and make buildings out of. Fire can be used to build. It can be used to cook. It can be used to give life and sustenance. But it can also be used to destroy. And we have, the reason why I believe we're so judgmental of others is because we have a fire inside of us and we're misplacing fire. When God wants us because he put that fire inside of us, 
to put the fire in the place it was meant to go. That the critical fire inside of us is meant to be directed inwardly, not outwardly. That that fire inside of us that makes us want to be judgmental of the world, that God put us inside us to stop and look inward first. To begin the inward journey first. And I don't mean critical as in us being critical of ourselves and criticism, leveling shame on ourselves. What I mean is this, objectively analyzing who we are and where we need to go. Stopping and saying, hey, you know, all this passion I'm putting where I'm judging the world, instead turn it inwardly and say, where is Jacob at? And where does Jacob need to go? Because earlier, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1 through 2, do not judge or you'll be judged. You know what he says in verse 3 and 5? This. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Why are you not focused on this inward journey that I would have you do instead of this outward journey to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. Now he's... Now he's Getting at me, he's talking to me now. I'm a hypocrite. First take then the plank out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see the speck from your brother's eye. He's saying the first thing we need to do is journey inward to work on the planks in our own eye, to work in the things we need to do in our own heart. He doesn't say don't help your neighbor. He says start inwardly, and as you get to a healthy place of working through these things, then you can go to your neighbor and say, hey, here's the work I've done in my own life. Let me meet you and help you with the speck in your life. Not in a judgmental way, but at a place of this is where you are in your story. Let me help you take the next step in your story. So how do we do that? How do we do that work? How do we turn it inwardly to an inward journey? Paul goes on to tell us in Romans 2. He says, or do you show contempt? So he says, do not judge. You're holding everyone to the same standard. But do you show contempt for the riches of his, talking about God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness or goodness is intended. What he's saying is this part of God's nature, his goodness, his kindness, his forbearance, his patience, it literally exists for this reason. To lead you to repentance. To lead you to repentance. That it is there for that specific reason. So you may be hearing this and saying, okay, so our movement to this critical fire inside, to journey inward, to use that fire to analyze ourselves, is, is really a movement towards repentance. But what is repentance? It may be a word you've heard going to church before, you've heard it, you've never really understood it, or maybe it's your first time ever hearing this word, but he's saying that we, he is meant to lead us to repentance. Let me explain it to you this way. When I was on the trail with my son, we were headed towards danger, and we stopped and we turned and went the other way to a safer way. At its most literal form, that's what repentance is. You're headed towards God's wrath and turning and going the other way towards him and his goodness. And his kindness. That's what repentance looks like. It's just a turning and literally moving your direction in a different way. Let me show you this. Let me show you repentance in the Old Testament. And then we'll move to the New Testament. I think you'll see it more clearly. And let me say this before I read this. If you're ever reading the Bible and you're like, I can't, rep- I can't pronounce these names in the Bible. It makes it hard to read the Bible. I don't like to do it because I don't want to mess up somebody's name. Look, let me show you this. Barakiah, he ain't here. And he ain't going to get offended if you mess up his name. Don't worry about that. My last name's Scripture. People mess it up all the time. They call me Scrimpshire. I never get offended most of the time. 
I just tell them, hey, have you ever been to New Hampshire? No, it's New Hampshire. Scrimpshire, roasted. So in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Barakiah, and the son of Iddo, that guy. The Lord was very angry with his ancestors. Therefore, he told the people this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me. Don't miss this. Return to me, declares the Lord, and I will return to you. Says the Lord Almighty, do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways. Hear that turning language. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? Where are the prophets? Do they live forever? But did not my words and my dec and decrees which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented. They turned from their ways. And said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve. To the scales. We created the scales and he held us to that. Look at this one. If you like mispronouncing names, this is Malachi. But we'll call him Malachi. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. This idea of repentance is not a new one. It's what God has been doing since the very beginning. Since we sinned in the Garden of Eden, his whole message, his whole promises, everything he's doing is saying to people, return to me. And part of his forbearance and goodness and patience, he's saying that my promise is when you return to me, I will return. And this carries on into the New Testament. As the New Testament begins and we hear John the Baptist coming onto the scene, what is the first thing he proclaims? He says, repent for the kingdom of God is heaven. Turn your ways. Return to me and I will return to you is what he's saying. Jesus' whole message is saying, hey, repent and follow me. Become like me. Turn from your ways and follow my ways instead. Repent. Jesus' whole thing, you could hear him saying that there's two ways. There's one that leads to destruction and there's one that leads to life. If you're on the one that leads to destruction, repent and return to me. If you're one that's on the way to life, persist in doing good. Because this is what I want you to see. If you don't hear me say anything else today, hear me say this. God wants us to return to him more than we will ever know. I don't even have the words to explain to you how much God wants you to return to him. Just picture this. Picture if you had a child who has severed his relationship with you and you feel distant from that child. How much would you want that child to return to you? That times a million is how much God wants you to return to him because you are his child. And you're like, Jacob, I never knew him. But he knew you because he created you and he wants you to return to him. Some of us are in our journey. It's like, I've gone too far, Jacob. I've gone too far to return to him. But this is the gospel truth. There is never such thing as too far from God. His promise is still true. Return to him and he will return to you. Repent and he will return to you. So maybe you're at the place today where like, Jacob, I... I want to repent. I want to confess. I want to make this move. And what I would encourage you to do is when you leave here today, go read Psalm 51. If you've never read Psalm 51, it is David at the depths of his sin, done all kinds of things you, you can't even imagine. And it's a, it's a psalm of repentance and confession. 
But in that same psalm, he says this, Lord, I confess, heal me. But he also says, sustain me that I cannot go from this place forward without your sustenance. And in finality, I want you to create in me a pure heart. But here's the thing. If we come to the Lord, all of us, and say, Lord, create in me a pure heart. If you're working for something to have purity, you have to remove the impurities. And when we ask God to do that, say, make in me a pure heart, he is going to reveal impurities in our life. And it's going to be hard. In fact, God wants to tell us more about our own heart than we want to know. You know, we come to the Lord like, hey, this is what I want from you, Lord. But the Lord's like, no. I want even more for you than that. And I'm willing to tell you the things that exist in your heart that you may not want to hear. And that type of repentance and renovation, it is hard and it takes time. But here's the thing. We could live in ignorance and not know these things and say, hey, things feel, I feel like things are going well. But the Lord wants to remove these things from our heart because we can't grow from things we don't know about. And God wants to speak to us and reveal those things that we need to repent from. And I'll say this. You can't get the alligator out of the bathtub alone. You're like, what's with this guy? Wolves and alligators. And you can't get the alligator out of the bathtub alone. What I mean by that is you go buy a baby alligator, you feed it, you put it in the bathtub. Like, oh, look at this cute little alligator. You feed it a little bit, it gets bigger. You feed it a little more, it gets bigger. Next thing you know, you have a full-grown alligator in your bathtub and you have a room you can't go to anymore. And if you did, the alligator would probably eat you. That is the sin in our life. We say, I'll just do this small sin. No one will know about it. Here's this small sin. It won't hurt me right now. And then we feed it a little. And then we feed it a little. And then we feed it a little. Then it becomes this full-grown thing that we have no longer have control over. And now it's a room in our heart that we can't go to anymore. And we're scared to death. We're like, I cannot get this sin out of my life alone. And that is true. That's why we need community around us. That's why I'm in a community group. So I can have people around us to help me live this life of repentance and renovation of the heart. Because if you're doing a renovation, you don't want to do it alone. You need people. You could do it by yourself, but you can do it so much easier when there's people with you helping with this renovation. Repentance and renovation require people to do it together. That's why I'm in a men's group. So I can have people asking me the tough questions in my life. How am I leading myself? How am I leading my family well? You said you were going to repent in this. How does that look like in your life? Asking me these tough questions. It's literally why we, in, we came up with the men's versus conference. So that we could have a place where we could tell men. Because men are worse at this than other people. Don't go alone. You need other people to help you get these alligators out of your bathtub. You weren't meant to do it alone. Look at this verse. To those who persist in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. This is our memory verse for the week through the series where we have a memory verse each week. And when you first glance at this, you're like, isn't that what the Jews believe? That we could do good and God would love us because of it? It says those who persist in doing good. But what I want you to see here is... Where we've got to this point is we've done the repentant work. We've allowed God into our heart. We've returned to him. He's returned to me. And because of that sustenance and that pure heart he's created in us, we can now finally truly do good because the one that was good has made us that way. I love how Tim Keller says it like this. He says, this is how religion works. If I obey, then God will love and accept me. That's religion, that if I do these things, God will love me. But this is the gospel. This is what Romans is telling us from beginning to end, that I am loved and accepted. Therefore, I wish to obey. 
Here's the thing, guys. You don't have to read your Bible every day. You don't have to. You don't have to go to his word. You don't have to read it. You don't have to spend time looking to discern through scripture. You don't have to. But when you stop and realize that God gave us his revealed word of what he was like and what he has for us in the world, we stop and say, you know, I don't have to. I get to. And then we realize, you know what? You don't have to care for your neighbor. You don't have to reach out to them and care for them and seek to minister to them. You don't have to do that. It's not a requirement. But when you realize how much Jesus has cared for you, how much he has given for you, that he gave his life for you, that he died on the cross for you, then it's no longer, I have to care for my neighbor. You realize I get to care for them, my neighbor the way that Jesus cared for me. And this means this is also true. You don't have to repent. You do not have to repent from your sins. But when you stop and realize what's on the other side of the way that you are going with the repentance that needs to be done in your life, you realize that you are headed towards wrath. You are headed towards judgment. You are headed towards destruction. But God said, I love you so much that I am providing a different way for you, that I'm sending my son to die for you and to die for me, that I'm going to spill my blood so that you do not have to face that wrath, that you can go to a new path, that you can go to a new way. So brothers and sisters, you do not have to repent. But by the grace of God, we get to. That our God loved us so much that he gave us an opportunity to repent. That since the beginning of time to now, and he's saying it to us right now in the clearest words I can possibly say, return to me and I will return to you. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this this spot, Lord, uh, take the judgment out of our heart, Lord. Turn it into a fire to turn inward, Lord. That we can get the things in our life out that don't need to be there, Lord. Let us do the renovation that you called us to, Lord. Let us return to you. Let us be a people of repentance. Lord, if there's anybody in this room who's walking down that path, Lord, and they've never made a decision to truly follow you, Lord, let them repent and believe today. And if there's anyone here that have been following you, but they feel so far, Lord, give them the strength to know your promises still is true. That return to me and I will return to you. And for all of us, Lord, let us walk in your ways. The ways that lead to your presence and to your life and to your eternal life. Lord, to the day that we are singing with you in the fullness of staring at your wonderful and glorious face. And we're thankful for that opportunity. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with friends and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you are interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.